We're going to look at this, um, this next week here in the series, Help My Unbelief. Why belief in Jesus and the Christian faith is not a blind faith. Christians are accused all the time of just blindly following some religious, historically mythological character that has been perpetuated by controlling uh, systems and institutions for centuries. And for some reason, that uh, it, the, the people who follow the Christian faith can be characterized as people that are just stumbling along, blindly accepting. They've checked their brain at the door. They, they reject and, and renounce science, and they're just wandering through their life with a blind faith. We, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that Christians don't agree with that characterization at all. And there's reasons that they don't agree with that characterization. Um, they have come to believe deep in their heart that Jesus is who He says He is. And I want to just mention to you today that there is a passage here that this series is kind of growing from, and it's growing out of this segment right here where Jesus tells them this is the uh, only work, He says to His disciples, that God wants from you. The disciples are saying, you know, what are we supposed to do? What are you expecting of us? I mean, what's entailed in this kingdom of yours that you've brought to earth? And Jesus says, this is the only work God wants from you. I mean, am I the only one who can see that this seems like it's going to be a big deal if Jesus is saying, there's only one work I want from you? That kind of seems like a big deal. Right? You pull out your list, you're going to document all the things that Jesus is expecting. If you grew up in a religious, legalistic, moralistic, behavioristic church, you know there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of regulations. There's a lot of things you've got to keep track of so that you don't uh, misstep and fumble up. But here's what Jesus says. There's only one work that God wants from you. Believe in the one He has sent. Let's leave it at that, Jesus says. And I wonder if Jesus is saying this one work is the most important. Well, there's probably a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because He knew, no doubt, that this work of believing was going to be a lifetime work. It was not going to be a work that you and I engage in and it happens in a moment and the work is done. And then we're like, well, that was easy. Uh, I wonder what else I can scrounge up in the Bible that God might expect me to do. This is a crucial work of believing. And here's what we come to discover. We need God's help to believe. We need God's help to believe. Here's how it sounded for one father who has a child and the child is demon-possessed. They come up on Jesus and they're arguing because the disciples tried to heal this child and the child wasn't healed and now they're fighting over it and Jesus comes up on it and says, what's going on? And they said, well, your disciples, they tried to heal my son. The demons possess him. They throw him in the water or then the fire. They're trying to kill him. He writhes around on the floor and he stiffens up and there's all kinds of scary, scary moments here. But essentially the demons are trying to kill him as they've possessed him and, and, and the, the disciples couldn't do anything. But if you are able, Jesus, we could use your help. And Jesus is like so disgusted. If I'm able, if I'm able. And then the father of Jesus says to, says to him, says to Jesus, I do believe, but what does he ask Jesus to do? Uh, help me out here. What does he say? Help me. Help me believe. I do believe. See the tension? We talked about this for, for several Sundays. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief, right? I believe. I want to believe. I have the sense of belief. I, there's a lot that's 
that I sense is happening in terms of my trust for you, Jesus, but also there's some unbelief. I don't know when you're going to do it. I don't know if you're going to choose to do it. I don't know if my son is actually going to be healed. And there's a general, this is what I've sensed, and I, and I, and I wonder if you've sensed this too. There's a general sense among those of us who have been Christians for any sense of time where we expect all good Christians. And if this isn't what you expect, that's okay too. But I've kind of sensed that, that most of the sensation, most of the expectations among the Christian family is this. If you're a good, solid Christian, you'll have no doubts. If you're a good, solid Christian, you will be able to defend and explain everything you believe in season and out of season. You'll be able to give an, a, a dead-on answer. And I have certainly, um, I certainly know this, that even if you don't necessarily feel that way, it, sh- it certainly seems true that among the Christian family, exploring our unbelief and starting to ask questions from the heart that really kind of concern us is something that Christians, the sense is in the Christian community, Christians should never do that. I, as you can imagine, feel the opposite. I think we should always do that. But the fear is that if we start entertaining these questions and we start to kind of investigate the hard parts of our faith, the parts that we have struggle, really struggle believing that, in fact, we um, may experience devastating consequences, that those questions might lead to answers that destroy our faith, that, in fact, um, I recognize that this is a risk because if any of you have known, and maybe this happened to you too, you get out of high school, you go to college, and then these um, professors just start to push back a little on the Christian faith, and then all of a sudden you just start to feel some things come unraveled and unglued. Like, oh, I never even questioned that before. I did not. My parents didn't bring these objections up to me when they were raising me in a Christian home. We didn't talk about this at church on Sunday. And the sense is that if we're not engaged in or prepared in these types of questions that disaster awaits. That, in fact, that those types of questions and pushback by professors or friends or coworkers or whatever else we get ourselves uh, uh, um, kind of dabbling in, that those flimsy arguments and our weak convictions and claims really start to give out and give way. And then eventually we see that it leads to the destruction or the deconstruction of our faith. And I think that a lot of us are very hesitant and tentative to get into the real questions about our faith or whether or not we fully believe everything we've ever heard or are supposed to believe about our faith. I'm curious, how many of you over time among the Christian church have felt the pressure not to ask too many questions. Would you raise your hand? How many of you felt pressure not to ask too many questions? Anybody? Don't ask too many questions. Don't lean into it too far because um, you might come up with answers that really do unravel your faith. So what happens when someone builds their life on just collecting all the promises of God that enhance our life? What happens when our Christian faith is only collecting all the blessings that God has promised for us and then real life hits? And we lose our marriage job. We lose our career. We lose our home. We lose, in some cases, our kids wander from the faith or we lose our health. Then we know what happens when somebody's faith is flimsy and we've never asked any questions about real life. We see 
our faith begin to kind of come undone, come unglued. So if you're a Christian, these might be times where you believe and yet, even though you believe, you don't necessarily feel the passion. When you lose your uh, job, house, health, kids, parents, when you lose loved ones, these are the times where we know that we are serving Jesus, but there's no passion left. We are confident that we want to follow Jesus, but there's no real desire to do it. Perhaps you're helpless on your own to revive and resuscitate that heart that used to really do passionately follow Jesus. So, you find yourself stuck a little bit between your belief and your unbelief, or your confidence in your questions. You know God exists, you know that He loves you, you know that He's good, but then under all this, we have this growing struggle with, I have some doubts, I have some real doubts. And yet, under all this is an object of our faith who is God Himself. And God Himself, so no matter how difficult things get, no matter how disorienting you feel at times, no matter how broken down or how dry your heart becomes, you can look back to God and you can pray this prayer and you can say, I do believe, but I need help overcoming. That's really, really good news, church family, that you can go back to this prayer straight out of the Bible who's having an encounter with Jesus and say, I just need your help because the object of our faith is at work under all of our questions, sustaining us and inspiring us and stirring it all up. A lot of the insights and commentary that you'll hear today and in the, in the past several parts of our series are, come from this um, author, Barnabas Piper, who wrote a book, Help My Unbelief. I'd I recommend you read this on your own. You'll hear a lot of what we've talked about together, and my hope is that you can grow on your own in between Sundays, because I believe it's not enough to listen on Sundays. It takes more to actually learn on Sundays, more than listening. So um, I hope that inspires you to keep going. So we talked about how what is belief? The definition of belief is transformation. What does that mean? It really means something must change. When you believe, there's a, a fundamental shift. There's movement. There's activity. There's action. That faith is actually followed up. Real faith is followed up by doing. That's the fruit of faith. But our earthly life here is not yet as God intended, right? Here's what we know, that our belief that you and I have is not perfect. Something else in our life that we can log that is imperfect in our life is our belief. We have imperfect belief. And theologians will talk about, the, about this idea that God's kingdom is already here. It's already broken in. You see, Jesus is already expanding His kingdom. There's already healing and regeneration. There's already spiritual gifts and people that are thriving as the work of the Spirit expands God's kingdom. So He's already at work breaking into the earthly kingdom with His kingdom, but we're not yet fully there in the finished state where everything's restored, everything's renewed, and everything's healed. You got that? Theologians call that already. It's happening. God's glory is at work, being seen and experienced, but it's not yet complete. So, there's something you can drop on your coworker at your lunch break. You ever heard of already, not yet? Let me explain something to you. You know why that lunch tastes so good? Because the kingdom of God is already broken in. But wait, there's more. So we have already seen Jesus brings this 
into being, but all of its perfection is yet to come. That includes our belief, the imperfection of our belief, right? You are saved, but you're not yet perfectly holy. You trust Jesus, but not always in everything. You already want to serve Him well, but continue to struggle with just falling short. You are in relationship with God, but continue to wander and pursue other gods, other good things that we turn into God things. You, of course, are submitted to God, but still at times find yourself ruling and reigning over your life like you are your own God. You believe, but at times it's so little. It's so... um, there's so much unbelief to battle. So what does that mean? That means we already are experiencing this kingdom of God, but we're not yet there where God wants us. So I believe, help by unbelief, should be the daily prayer of every Christian. Our belief is imperfect, and we're going to be struggling with two kinds of doubts. Two kinds of doubt. I want to make sure that we contrast this so that you see that there is an um, unbelieving kind of doubt, right? When I say everybody has doubts, there's different kinds of doubt. And this is documented and diagnosed and really explained in detail by our author Barnabas Piper, and he describes that there is unbelieving doubt which is not working toward anything, is not working toward God. It's asking questions in order to attack God's truth, not to learn or to get answers, That's the kind of doubt that's unbelieving doubt. It's undermining, it's attacking, it's trying to demonstrate that there are no answers or the answers are inadequate. It's built mostly on human realities of fear, rebellion, pride, anger, intuition, observation, logic. And it can be paralyzing for somebody who's experiencing unbelieving fear. They stop, the paralysis sets in, they don't move forward, and they see that all God offers and they say, I don't want that. Or with unbelieving doubt, they say, I don't believe that exists. Does that make sense? Uh, there is a really, really good chance that most of us here are not experiencing this kind of doubt, but we may have at one, one time in our life. Unbelieving questions come from an asker who wants to um, essentially doesn't want to make progress toward any answers. And then there's another kind I want you to see, and this is believing doubt. This would be the category that most of us experience when we struggle with some of our doubts. It comes from the heart of a believer, right? I am so relieved that my doubt is different from an unbeliever's doubt. I'm so relieved to discover that there's such a thing as believing doubt. And believing doubt aims, it has as its intention to have full confidence in God, but struggles sometimes because it cannot comprehend all that God is and all that God is doing. And also struggles to fully trust God. So there's a struggle there because of our lack of holiness or our lack of godliness or what have you. We cannot fully trust because we have some limitations. We want to trust We want to comprehend all that God is, but we have struggled doing it. And this kind of doubt, by the way, strengthens our belief. It causes us to pursue God more um, in more detail. It's It's the spark that leads us on to continue to pursue answers, and it's anchored in God's character. So, if you're asking yourself, wait a second, so Christians can have doubts? 
Christians can experience real heartfelt doubt. Um, here's the fruit of it. Here's, here's what we know. That Christian doubt is evidenced by, you can see it in our disobedience. You can see doubt or unbelief in our disobedience. And um, there's a couple of people that are easy targets. I mean, isn't it true? Adam and Eve are easy targets. We get to watch their lack of faith. We get to say, these guys are dodos. <laughs> what a couple of dummies. Here they are in the presence of God, and God does something so fantastic. And you see Adam and Eve have this intellectual acceptance. They know and they have a vivid belief in God because they're with God, but there's something that's going on. There is doubt in action, and the doubt in action is their disobedience. And God gives these boundaries, and He says, in me and within these boundaries, you're going to have all of me, you're going to have a relationship with me, you're going to have all of life. Everything you could possibly need is going to be within these boundaries. Just don't go outside these boundaries for this tree. This tree is beyond my boundary, and I'm giving you this command because I love you. I want you to experience the best that you could possibly experience. I want you to be with me and experience all that I have for you. And what do they say? Well, that's not enough. That's not really what I'm wanting. Now that we already have you, i am kind of got my eye on what you have just described as outside of the boundary. And so, the root of this, the root of this disobedience is their disbelief that God can be trusted, that, what his, that His way is the best way for them. And it leads them. Um, God gives this clear command don't eat. By the way, this is a protection command. If you've ever raised kids, you have protection commands all the time. Do not stick those metal little pieces in the electrical socket. I was the kind of dad who let my kid learn by experience in some cases. On, on that one, you're saying, I'm going to give you a protective command. And kids by nature say, oh, you're restricting me. Oh, you are limiting, you are limiting my fun. You are inhibiting my life by your protective commands. And so they didn't believe God, Adam and Eve, and his boundaries had their best interest at heart. So they disobediently, right, with unbelief, they, they, um, they forfeited the close relationship that they had with God. They forfeited everything God offered them that comes with being in intimate relationship with Him. They gave it up. Why? They were disobedient. Where did that come from? Their doubt. I doubt God has my best interest in mind. I doubt His commands can be trusted, and that's where we see it. And God's commands are loaded with promises, peace and joy. His commands are loaded with healing for the heart and hope. And all of that comes with being within His boundaries. I often see people talking about how liberated they are, and I kind of inspect their life a little bit. Maybe, you know, maybe they're celebrities or something else, and I inspect their life just a little bit, and I say, well, if that's freedom and liberty, I don't, want, <laughs> I don't really want that kind of pain and suffering. I have found that the commands that God gives us staying within that is, the, is where the joy is and the happiness is that God has created us. And so Adam and Eve missed this because they disbelieved his character. So what does Christian faith look like? Here's a question. What does it look like to have faith? Really, Christian faith is obedience. When you have faith that's alive, it moves you towards obedience. You are doing what God has commanded you to do, what he's asked you to do. You're doing the work of believing Obedience is belief in action. 
There's this great story that uh, I heard a long time ago, and I, I wonder if you've heard this story. There's this I, I, I'm not sure if it's true. I got a feeling that it's not true. I, I got a feeling that this was invented for evangelistic purposes by the preacher. But there's a story about this, um, uh, I don't know, stuntman, um, acrobat, who had cabled a wire from one side of Niagara Falls to the other side, and he gets on this, um, he gets on this wire, and he's got his unicycle, and he's riding back and forth on the wire, and it starts to draw a crowd, and the crowd starts to say, this is amazing. Everybody, look at what this is doing. This is incredible. And then he's, and he starts yelling to the crowd, I'm going to cross this, um, I'm going to cross this cable across the, the, the Niagara Falls juggling. Do you believe I can do it? And people start to mumble, I, I believe you can. I believe you can. He goes, do you believe? And they start chanting, we believe, we believe. So he Rides his unicycle all the way across. This is made up. This did not really happen, right? You are, do, we already, do we already agree this is made up? It's an illustration. So he juggles across and then comes back, and then he says, I'm going to do something else. Do you think I can do it? And they said, we believe. And he said, I'm going to take this wheelbarrow, and I'm going to push it all the way across. And he pushes it across, and they start chanting, we believe, we believe. He comes back, and he says, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to load this up with a, a big old boulder. How many of you believe? And they start chanting, we believe, we believe. Takes the boulder on the wheel, wheelbarrow all the way across, all the way back. And then he says, now, for my last trick, I am going to wheel some of, someone across this great Niagara Falls, and it's going to be one of you. How many of you believe? And everybody step back. Every person. And what, what, did they what did he discover? And nobody believed he was going to be able to do that. And the belief was demonstrated in their lack of willingness to take this step, right? And here's what I'm hoping that you see, that Christian faith is a willingness to move. When faith is alive, when your heart has been regenerated, there's a willingness to take the step that God is drawing you into do, that He's commanding you to do, that He's inviting you to do, and there's a willingness in our obedience which says, I trust God in every way, and we have an incredible example. When God says to Abraham, Abraham, I am going to, I, he makes him amazing promises, right? He's going to make him a father of many nations. He's going to fill the earth with people. So many people will be like the grains of the sand on the seashore. And he says, among this promise is, I'm going to make you this, this uh, 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 shine brightly among the nations. I'm going to reflect my glory through the people of Israel, and you are going to be the father of all this, this, um, this nation, and all of these generations. And Abraham moves. He picks up and he moves. Where did, and some of you know your Bible, where did Abraham think he was going? He had no idea. He landed. In fact, God said, I want you to move. Abraham asked for the address so he could punch it into Zillow and check out all the pictures. And God says, no, you're going to move to a land I will show you. Because I haven't revealed it yet. And how do we know that Abraham has faith in God? How do we know that his belief is alive and well? Because he obediently took the step to start moving towards this land that God was just going to reveal while he was going. Amazing. And Abraham 
didn't just move himself physically, but also there was some movement happening in his heart because eventually God says, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm asking you to make a sacrifice, and of course it's his son, and he takes his son up to make this sacrifice. And his obedience to sacrifice his own son re- reveals his trust that God and his commands can be trusted. And we have no record of Abraham. This is amazing. There's no record of Abraham arguing with God. There's no record of Abraham resisting God. There's no record of him fussing about the details. He did not put himself above God. He did not demand that God did things his way. He, in fact, um, did not assume that he knew better than God knew as to what was best for him in his life. He didn't resist God's command because it didn't make any sense to him. God, so let me get this straight. You're asking me to take my son and do blood sacrifice and it's going to be my son. I mean, this is really complicated. Not only do I not know how you could possibly ask me this, but centuries later, people are going to be reading this documentation in the Old Testament and they're going to be like, this is crazy talk. He does not put God in subservience to him. Instead, he set out to obey and he does so with this firm belief that God would provide a substitute. In Hebrews, by the way, in chapter 11, it circles back around to mention Abraham, and Abraham believed God would have gone so far. This is what it says in Hebrews, that Abraham believed that God would have gone so far that if Isaac was sacrificed, he would have raised him back up. He was just said, how do I know that? I trust my God's character. I trust the kind of God in whom I rest my faith. The object of my faith is trustworthy. And, of course, we know that God did make a way, and at the last second, He provides an alternative, and, that, of course, that ram becomes the sacrifice. So what signs are we looking for? When you think about genuine belief, what signs are we looking for? Well, our belief is a faith that moves us. We're looking for movement. Now, some of you might be prone to doing, and you're thinking movement, right. So faithful church attendance, following, coming up with some higher standards with our morality and so on. And the Pharisees help us understand that you can be doing a lot of religious activity and still your heart is far from God, or Jesus described it as a whitewashed tomb, right? So we know that we have to be careful when we say, what does it mean, a faith that moves us? What does it, what does it move us to? Moves us to do what? And there are three evidences that God is at work with this faith full of action, that God is moving us. And the first one is Repentance. We know that God is at work with this saving faith, this belief, when you and I are compelled to repent. What does that mean? That means we withdraw our trust in ourselves to save ourselves, to justify ourselves, to live right outside of God or separate from God. So we say, I'm not really trusting in myself. I renounce that kind of living, that kind of self-reliance, that kind of selfish pride. I renounce that. And I'm going to transfer my trust. I'm going to rest it in Jesus. And now I trust Him. And there's a sense of very, very um, godly sorrow and sadness over sin. But it's not guilt and shame, right? Because there's hope, and the hope is, is going to bring healing to us. And then we want to do things God, God's way, and we renounce and reject doing things our way. Does that make sense? That only comes by faith. That kind of movement in our heart only comes by the work of God. And, it's, and we have to look outside of ourselves for help. And it turns toward honoring Jesus. No repentance, by the way, means no evidence of God's grace. The other thing that you can look for is prayer. 
when someone is experiencing this faith that moves us, that person will pray. There will be prayer. It may not be, at first it's just an acknowledgement of God. Then, of course, it's God's reality. Then we acknowledge that He is God. We start to um, acknowledge our dependence on Him, and eventually it grows into gratitude, thankfulness, joy, praise. And then ultimately, one of the fruits of repentance is humility, right? So when this faith is at work, if you're looking for evidences that you have this kind of saving faith, this believing faith, what you're looking for is movement, repentance, prayer, and humility. Humility, this is a a great quote. I think C.S. Lewis is the one that kind of described humility this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. You are not in the center of your thinking. Not, uh, in fact, Tim Keller teaches this. He says, sometimes someone could be just as prideful when, they, when they're, when they're um, putting themselves out there and they want all the attention on themselves or when they're abandoning the, the, the um, front lines and they're withdrawing so far because they don't want anybody to notice them. In other words, they're hyper-focused on themselves. That could be also prideful. Protecting yourself and promoting yourself are just two sides of the pride coin. So, he's talking about humility here, just being willing to think less about yourself. Admitting that I have fault, admitting that I have a need, admitting that um, I'm going to put myself at the mercy of others, I'm going to put myself at the mercy of God, and I need forgiveness and help. Where does that come from? Somebody who God is at work bringing humility to their life. Repentance, prayer, and humility. That's the fruit that you're looking for. Well, what about some other things? Give it time. Those other things grow in our sanctification and our maturity. The first three things we're looking for are those three. That's so vital if you're trying to investigate. Martin Luther King Jr. says this, faith is taking a first step even when you don't see the entire staircase. Reminds me of this, um, of that Indiana Jones movie. Do you remember that Indiana Jones movie where there is this particular canyon that no one's ever crossed and there's all these skulls and skeletons. What a surprise. In an Indiana Jones movie, there's skeletons and skulls everywhere, right? And, and he anticipates that they're supposed to get to the other side of this canyon. And um, the first, of course, the first step is the scariest step because there's nothing there. And then what do we see? Eventually, they take the step and all this gravel that they throw out reveals that there's a, almost like an entire pathway that they didn't see before. What does it take? Martin Luther King says sometimes faith just means you take a step and you don't even see the staircase. You don't know where it's leading, but you start moving. True belief looks at God and it sees. I see the extent of His character and it's beautiful and trustworthy. takes that first step because I see the depth of God's goodness. It takes that first step because of the profoundness of God's perfection. It's supreme. No faults, no flaws. And I know, and I'm familiar with, even if I'm just reading it in the Old Testament, I am so impressed with the immensity of His power. So I think to myself, in that case, what else can I do but obey? I have full confidence and full trust. So how do we get to this kind of faith? How do we actually believe? This is so vital for us. Uh, The first thing that we have to think in terms of how we believe is by process. I did not really understand this. Young in my faith, I did not understand this. I thought that when I, was, when I was young in my faith, I thought that it was always and forever that, the, that this belief happens like a switch. That's what I thought. In fact, you could trigger that switch just by responding to the evangelist's 
call to salvation, you just had to raise your hand. If you raise your hand, something happened. And I realize now after praying with people who've come down to an altar and they have all these different, um, when they've raised their hand, I realize sometimes, a lot of times, people raise their hand for different reasons. You don't really know. I don't always, don't always know what the reason is. But it, it, belief is more of a process than it is an instant trigger, an instant switch. I hope we kind of grasp this idea. It doesn't happen by one single moment. Instead, it happens by the process. So who of you here do a little gardening? Where are my gardeners? Gardening, your thumb may not be green, but it's dirty. Where are you? Okay, now we got more hands that way. If you imagine the process of gardening, right, there's got to be a seed. The seed is sown into the soil. The soil needs sun and water. Um, In some cases, that growth needs pruning back. But in order to get growth, all of those ingredients have to take place. In large part, faith is the same way. There's an ecosystem for growth, and a lot of things have to happen. I'll ask you another question. Do you mind if I ask you a question and you raise your hand? Is that okay? If you don't want to raise your hand, don't raise your hand. We are empowering you to live free and independent here on Sunday morning. But how many of you, when you think back of your life of faith, you can explain a lot of what you experienced when you think of your, your belief in terms of a garden growth process? Raise your hand if you think back and you think, there was, there was, there was a lot happening for a long time. It took a while. The ingredients had to be there. Some activity. By the way, when that garden finally grows, what happens? What did you do to make it grow? What did you say? What did you snap? What did you? What kind of incantation did you? You cannot make the garden grow. You bring the ecosystem into being, and you know that it's reliable. And then some kind of miraculous spark has to bring life to those little seeds. You can't do anything about it. I've looked at seeds sometimes. I've, I planted a lilac tree for my wife, and like 10 years later, I'm like, this was supposed to be a lilac bush tree, tree bush. Ends up like a lilac plant or stick, a lilac <laughs> stick. Not exaggerating. Eventually, it grew and grew and grew. No lilacs. And then, years later, I started looking at where it was planted. I'm like, I'm pretty sure this should not have been planted between the tree line and the shed underneath shelter in the dark. (laughs) Turns out, it needed sun. It was missing a piece of the ingredient. But keep this in mind. The ecosystem is like a garden. So when you think about belief, and I know this is a lot to take in, I'm just hoping that we can kind of learn and grow a bit in our picture of what this looks like. Belief happens by process. You might have somebody that you're praying for, you love them, you're a coworker, teammate, classmate, parent, uh, perhaps a child, grandparent, you're like, God, I just know that you are going to work in their heart and I just want you to, please, may they come to saving faith and follow Jesus. Keep this in mind. There is a process in place. There is a lot that God is doing that you may not see the soil and the seed and you may not see the sun and the water and you may not see the pruning that's going on as that little growth starts. But God's at work and only He can spark that life by His Spirit miraculously. And by the way, we also know this, that as the garden growth is happening, it's growing in seasons, right? 
And occasionally, some little rodent or critter comes over and starts to chew up some of that growth. There's seasons of big harvest and there's seasons of dryness and death. Every moment you exist is a moment that God is keeping you and God is keeping you um, willfully. Your existence is being maintained by a, a creator. So there's another process that, that is needed and it's a friendship process. So we have a garden process for belief and then we have a friendship process for belief. So relationship with God is the defining aspect of our belief in Him. We have relationship with Him. And this is a hard one because we like relationships with things that have skin on and can respond to us, understandably. This one's a difficult one for so many of us, but the friendship process is the defining aspect. So the transformation of our life in this life of faith comes by having a relationship with God and finding a way to do that in a healthy regular, ongoing. True belief is always a, 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 a belief in a relationship with God. And this skin-on-skin -skin type of relationship that we have with our kids and our parents and our coworkers and our bosses, those relationships shape our lives. Parents with our, our, our relationship with our grandparents shapes our lives. Relationship with our grandkids, it shapes our lives. Relationship with the God of the universe when we put skin-to-skin -skin contact and we get to know who He is, not just about Him, but His character and His nature and the way He does things, we see dramatic change in our lives. As we start to see God's character, we start to see His dependability, His power, all those things that we mentioned earlier. So how do we build that relationship? How do we keep that relationship going? We have to immerse ourselves in the way that He's revealed us, in, in the way that He has revealed Himself. He has revealed Himself in Scripture, and we have to immerse ourselves in Scripture. It is absolutely impossible to grow in our faith without immersing ourselves in the way in which God has revealed him to us, Himself to us primarily through Scripture. And this is... Um, you think of this like another process. Really, this is a lot like a getting healthy process or a fitness process, right? To exercise our hearts to see Him as He's revealed Himself is by the Scripture, by the words that God has given us. Belief is more like um, getting physically fit. We don't merely read our Bibles, we consume them, and we consume them regularly, just like we eat healthy food to nourish our physical body. And if you try, as much as I love kettle chips, as much as I find myself struggling with, it is... I cannot lie. I, there has not been one time I've ever eaten one kettle chip and didn't eat a second. That's the truth. I just confess something to you. It's very sensitive. It's very important to me. I can't stop eating kettle chips. I do know this. I have also had so many in a sitting that I was sick of them that it, um, I started to feel like a kettle chip. Crunchy, oily, And so, we who fail to nourish our bodies by consuming things that are unhealthy for our spirits, unhealthy for our um, mental, emotional state, but mostly unhealthy for ourselves, when we consume those things on a regular basis, we are um, failing and forfeiting the nourishment that comes through the Scripture. What you feed grows, what you starve dies. 
And if we clutter our souls with unhealthy junk food, eventually we're going to feel weak in our faith. We're going to feel disconnected from God. We're going to have doubts that are really devastating for us. And this junk food that we clutter our lives with might be tasty at first, but after a while we, get, we start to feel ill spiritually, socially, emotionally. And if it's all that we ate was that cluttered up junk food, then eventually, of course, we waste away spiritually because it has no nutritional value. And it's our Bible that gives us the nutrition that we need. And by the way, I can help you. In our website, in our, in our, um, our app, we, can, we refer you to some Bibles that will help you grow on your own, some study Bibles that will help you kind of get nourished. The Gospel Transformation Study Bible, a great place to start. And you've got that website, of course, the Bible Project, which uh, is such a great way of consuming the Bible. But our Bible is the nutrition that our, that our soul needs. So, keep in mind, too, that um, it's also by the Spirit that this relationship happens. Lastly, it's by the Spirit. The Scripture without the Spirit will not be um, full of life. The Holy Spirit is essential in all saving belief in Christ. We cannot generate belief without the Spirit. We cannot have relationship with God. We cannot understand the truth without the Holy Spirit illuminating it to our minds. Without the work of the Spirit, we see the Bible and we're like, it's just an old-timey historical book. Maybe it has some good morality in it, good moral stories in it, but really it's not that uh, transformational. But it's transformational because the Holy Spirit is the introducer of our hearts to God. The Holy Spirit is... Uh, now, our minds already know things about God. Our mind already understands things about God. Uh, maybe has gathered countless facts about God, but it's the work of the Spirit that opens our heart to have affection for God, to desire God, to have pleasure in God, and to delight in God. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. And apart from that work of the Holy Spirit, we find God um, off-putting. We find God intrusive. We find God... Um, clearly much, much different than He's revealed Himself to us. And this Holy Spirit introduction of our hearts to God is a miraculous introduction. Absolutely life-changing. It breaks through and brings the natural into the supernatural. The Spirit comes to us through faith and belief in Jesus, transferring our trust in Jesus. And the Spirit is also the one who opens our heart to believe. Alone, we are blind, foolish, and dead. But because of the work of the Spirit, we have sight we have wisdom and we have life. And all that comes by the work of the Spirit. So what's our role? Well, our role is um, childlike faith. That's our role. How do we believe? Well, we embrace that it's a process. And then lastly, it's by childlike faith. This is super important. It's important because we have to remember that Jesus didn't say, you have to, unless you come to the Father with faith like a newborn infant swaddled in a blanket. Now, he didn't say that. And I wonder if the reason is because a swaddled newborn in a blanket is passive, is basically inactive. I mean, cute is, I mean, universal, right? But for the most part, has no real interaction with the parent. Jesus says, I tell you the truth unless you turn away from your sins and become like little children. That's the kind of faith. 
then you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So this is the defining aspect of our faith. It is a process that the Spirit is at work in the relationship through the Scripture, but then eventually we get to, it's time for faith. What kind of faith? Is it a big, big faith? Is it a big boy faith? Is it a big girl faith? It's not. It's the faith of a little child. What does that mean? That means that this faith trusts the parent. This faith is so unique. It's so important for us to recognize that. And by the way, children come in all different shapes and sizes and activity level, right? So there's all different kinds of childlike faith. Sometimes it's organized, cut and dry. Other times it's not. It's a little feisty and passive. But Jesus didn't say to be uniform, passive, mindless and dependent, instead active and curious, right? Kids are curious. They're asking questions, and they're depending on their parent for an answer. And they trust when they get an answer at a certain age, they trust that that answer is a good answer and is for their best interest. It explores questions. It wants to know, oh, that phase. Do you remember that phase, the why phase? Do you remember that phase? That was the only phase I thought, I'm not sure I want to be a father, I'm just not sure. I thought I was sure, now I'm not sure. Why? 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 But it's a curiosity to want to hear from the parent. And there's a tenderness about that. They ask because they want to learn. A childlike faith is someone who expects their parents to have an answer, always believing that their parents have their best interest in mind. So they don't get hung up in some sort of you know, paralysis over what they've just heard because the answer isn't perfect or the answer isn't desirable. And the problem, this is our problem, the problem is that eventually we grow out of spiritual childlike faith. We grow out of it. We become adults, then we question God's motives, we seek, we begin to seek our own independence, we question everything because we're starting to think we know more than our parent, our Father in heaven. And then as spiritual adolescents, we slowly let ourselves withdraw our trust from our Father in heaven and we trust ourselves. We rest in our own understanding. We rebel against the authority, their authority over us. And so, like a little child, we ask questions. Like a little child, we act. And we do all of that in this context that our Father in heaven knows best. And we find rest and peace. He proves His love for us over and over again. So daily, this is what we pray. Church family, daily work this into our regular prayers. Help me overcome my unbelief. I have believer unbelief, believer doubt. Help me overcome. And when you do, when you do, this is what happens. You are reminded. This is a list that comes from our author, of that supplemental reading. When, when you do, when you pray that, we're asking God, remind us of what I know about you. Let that prayer remind you of what you don't yet know that God has already known and hasn't revealed it to you. Let it remind you that you're resting in the unknowns, you're resting in the Father. And let it remind you that there is so much more to look forward to. You're already living with God and among His family and in His kingdom, but not yet all the way there. And this prayer helps to stir that up. Let's pray together. Father, thank You today for Your work to challenge our hearts. We pray for a new insight, a new confidence. When we think of the people we're praying for, God, we pray that You'd help their faith come alive. That You'd help us tackle questions that we have 
with openness and honesty and sincerity, knowing that through Scripture we're going to see who you are and through the work of your Spirit it's going to come to life. We depend on you. We hope in you. And we delight in you. And I pray that you would stir up the desire in the hearts of the people here today in our church family who are here with us and here online. Would you stir their hearts to immerse themselves in the Scriptures so that they can see clearly who you are and what you've accomplished. And let our hearts worship and adore. Let our hearts obey you because we have confidence in you. And we're mindful that there are some here today, God, who need to take some steps and are cautious because they're not sure they can depend on you. We ha- there are some who maybe sense that you are stirring their heart to save their soul, and this process has been ongoing, but today they have their doubts and reservations, A, that it's you, or B, that it's possible. And I just pray that you give them the divine inner courage to take that first step of obedience and that they would pray their prayer of repentance that they would exercise some humility in that prayer and that you would do some amazing spiritual birth that that seed would burst to life and that seed of faith would grow among our church family or wherever we trust you to do it in Jesus name amen would you stand we're going to sing and celebrate all that Jesus is